This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading is Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, to be found on page 812 in your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounced you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the law that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark, and I am one of the pastors here. We're glad that you're here. Welcome. Before I get started this morning, before I get started this morning, I want to say something about the last 10 days of January. Hey, uh, historically, as a church, we have fasted during the month of January. We've done things as long as 21-day fasts. We've done different versions of maybe keeping the building open so people could come and pray and fast during, during that season. Well, this year, this year I decided to wait until after all of our bubbles have burst and we've made all of our failures for our New Year's resolutions. So we're over that kind of enthusiastic hump. And the last 10 days of January, just 10 days, we're just going to set aside and take maybe a meal or a day and moments to fast and pray as a church. We're handing these out and we'll have more of these next week. There's some prayers on the back. But um, yeah, my hope is, is that we would do what Isaiah 55, 1 tells us to do, which is come. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That, that is a call to worship. Because that's how we worship God. We don't have what it takes. We don't have enough in ourselves. You're actually more hungry and thirsty than you ever actually experience, than you ever really realize. And so my hope is that we would come in those last 10 days of January and drink deeply of God and spend time praying and calling out and crying out to him to be with us, to guide us, to lead us in 2023. And the other scripture verse I have on my mind during that 10 days is Psalm 127, one, which is, which is unless the Lord builds a house, the builders build in vain. And unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchmen watch in vain. In vain we stay up late or get up early. So I want 2023 to be a, a season, a year where 
all the, all the nails that we hammer are ones that the Lord is hammering, the ones that, ones that the Lord is directing and leading us in. So that's just a small plug for the last 10 days of January to spend time in focused prayer and fasting. And then the other way I want to begin this morning is I want to say that everyone who hears, everyone who hears these words and does them will be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Will be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. And when, it isn't whether, but which. It isn't if, but when. When the storm comes, that man's house can be strong and stable because it was founded on the rock. But if we hear these words, and by these words, I mean these words. If we listen to these words, words right here inside this book and walk away, if you hear these words and dismiss them or minimize them or shrug them off, then you'll be like the person who labors, like a person who works and builds and builds and builds the structure of a life. But when the rain comes and the wind blows, it will raise that structure to the ground and great will be the fall of it. Would you bow your heads with me as I pray for us this morning? Heavenly Father, we make a conscious effort to listen to you this morning, to believe your words this morning through your scriptures. We make a conscious effort to submit our wills and our imaginations to your word. Spirit of the living God, would you come Awaken us, illuminate the word to us, correct us, convict us, open our eyes wider so we can see more, more of your beauty, more of our sin, more of your forgiveness that you offer. Open our eyes wider, increase our capacity to love you, to delight in you. Fill us with faith and make that faith strong this morning, Lord, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, as we, as we approach this climax, the two houses at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as we approach the climax of the sermon, I want, us to, I want to keep hammering that imagery into our minds and into our hearts. The whole sermon culminates with two different outcomes, two different results, two different ramifications. You see, your choices have natural consequences to them. A man reaps what he sows, and I want you to reap good things in this life and in the next life. So I'm burdened that we get that. I'm burdened that we feel it. I'm burdened that deep in our souls we experience the urgency of building our house on the right foundation. Because it isn't a joke. This story isn't merely allegorical. And what I mean by that is that it isn't merely an, an illustration in the sense that you can subtract the heft of what Jesus is saying in this imagery. If we want to be true to this metaphor, we should take it as much more serious than losing only your home or only your house. Because there's a destruction that doesn't end. There's things to lose in this life that are way worse than losing your house. 
And today we get to deal with the sandy foundation of sinful judgment. And I love this text. I love this text because I love rich and strong and robust and honest relationships with brothers and sisters in the Lord. And you can't have those kinds of relationships unless you can have hard conversations. And you can't have the kind of hard conversations that are healing and productive and holy unless you can see yourself rightly. We have to grasp exactly what Jesus is communicating. So first, we will define terms this morning. And once they're defined, we'll we'll pull out of what Jesus says. We'll pull out some principles from the text. In order to accomplish this, I want to talk about three definitions for the word judgment that's used, it's used differently throughout the scripture. So I want to talk about three definitions for the word judgment in the Bible. And then I want to talk about three statements, three propositional statements regarding judgment. Three definitions and three statements. I'm going to say them all now and then I'll repeat them later as we get to them. The definitions are one. There is a final judgment, as in the eternal destiny of people to heaven or hell. Number two, there is a definition of judgment that is to judge something as either good or bad, beautiful or ugly, that is to judge as in assess or test or evaluate something. This is the kind of judgment that ranks competitors. And then number three, There is a definition of judgment that is the judgment of rewards. Every Christian will be subject to a judgment based on how you've lived your life. Then the three statements that I want to make are, number one, we must judge. Even though right here Jesus says, judge not. That's not the totality of the Christian's relationship with making judgments. We must make judgments. Number two, our judgments will be judged. Our assessments will be assessed. Our evaluations will get evaluated by the judge of all the earth. Our judgments will be judged. And then number three is our judgments expose our hearts. They display our motives. They're a window into what's going on in the deep places of our soul. So we must judge. Our judgments will be judged. And our judgments expose what's inside our hearts. First, more about those definitions. When judgment is discussed in the scripture, there's moments that discuss the finality of this kind of final end, this final judgment. Hebrews 9 says, It is appointed to man once to die, and then the judgment. And in Matthew 12, we read, the men of Nineveh, of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because, because the men of Nineveh, Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What Jesus is highlighting in that text is that this generation isn't repenting. And at the, at the judgment, they will be condemned. That's a judgment that's rendered by God when unrepentant sinners are judged and delivered into their eternal torment. In Matthew 7, Jesus explains this to his listeners. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a judgment rendered for an eternal destination. Some to eternal life and some to eternal torment. The word judgment is used this way in the scriptures. And frankly, it's kind of off limits to us. Even thinking about this last text from Matthew, we don't know who God is saving. We can't see into men's hearts. You do not know who he will bring to himself. The gospel of John makes it clear that those whom the Father has given to Christ are his and he will keep them, but we do not know who that's going to be. So we don't pronounce that kind of judgment, eternal judgment, over anyone as a Christian. There's a determination in the end about who truly belongs to Christ and who doesn't. And this is a dividing of sheep and goats, wheat and weeds, and those who know him and are known by him will go one place and those who don't will go another. And we don't know who those people are. And this means that we don't judge people's eternal destiny, but we should take courage and labor to treat people the same way that the scriptures treat people. People who are engrossed in a life of immorality or sin or self-destruction, we don't guarantee their future. We can't guarantee where they're destined to go, but we can tell them Christ died so that they could be free. Christ died so that they could be forgiven, so that they could be adopted, so they could be called and sanctified and ultimately glorified. We plead with people the same way the apostles did. We plead, repent and believe so that you can know the love of God. We can be heartbroken and long with all our heart for the salvation of those who are still enemies of God. Our assessment is that they need God just like we needed God and we still need God. So we can pray every day for their salvation, not speak curses over their soul. We can lovingly and compassionately and courageously and humbly warn our friends or our family who don't know Jesus but we are not the judge and we're not to condemn anyone. That's the first definition of judgment and how it's used. And the second and third are maybe more useful for us specifically today. The second is a definition that isn't to condemn someone as it's used in the Bible, but instead to evaluate, to judge, to make an assessment, to appraise, to gauge, to rate, to make an estimation. This is a definition that we, are, that we see applying even a little later in Jesus' own words when he tells us to make distinctions, right? Make evaluations, understand what's going on, and make a judgment. In fact, Christians should long to be good at this. Christians should desire to be well-equipped to make good and righteous judgments. In Hebrews, the author says in chapter five, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's important. That's a big deal if we want to be wise people. And this is the kind of judgment that the scriptures 
praise. It does, it does not forbid it. Being able to distinguish between good and evil is very, very important. And it's a skill that's developed in mature believers. In our day, when evil is being called good and good is being called evil, it's very, very needed. We need Christians with conviction to raise families that know what is good and know what is evil and train their children to be able to tell the difference. This is one of the most important verses for me when I think about spiritual leadership. Do they have mature capacities to recognize cunning and lies and facades that parade as good things in our culture, but the Bible accurately calls them evil? Powers of discernment take maturity and practice so that we can make accurate distinctions, so that you can distinguish the subterfuge of the enemy from the truth of God. And we want to be able to do that. We want to be skilled at analyzing things rightly. And that's the second definition of judgment in the Bible. And I want us to be familiar with it and understand how Jesus is using the word judgment today. The third definition of judgment that I want us to consider is what is sometimes called the judgment of rewards. This is the judgment that happens to everyone on their way to their eternal destination. Let me read just a couple texts so that we understand what this is because Jesus talks about rewards in the Sermon on the Mount a lot. He talks about rewards a lot and it would be wise for us to understand what he's referring to. So do me a favor and turn to 1 Corinthians 3 in your Bibles. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians 3, starting in verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as through fire. This is a judgment, an assessment that's made for people who are building on the foundation of Christ. These are Christians. They've set out to build a life of works and deeds, loving acts of kindness on top of the only true foundation, and that foundation is Jesus. But they'll still be assessed, and the assessment here functions like a fire, so we would do well to ask ourselves, will the things in our lives, will the things in our lives that we're giving focus to, will they stand the fire? Will they survive the fire of testing 
Are we building with gold and silver? Or are we building with wood and hay and straw? The things that your life is about, are the things that your life is about, are they the kinds of things that make it into the next life? Or are you piling up a life, a Christian life that's a pile of grass or straw that in the end will just be burned? This is a real judgment in the scriptures. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And 1 Peter 1.17 says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your stay on earth. There's a judgment. There's an evaluation in the scriptures. And how we spend our time will be judged. What we did with our talents. What we did with our behavior. How we gave our lives to the kingdom will matter. These texts aren't about uh, works-oriented salvation, but they are important, and they are supposed to um, have an impact in our lives. I don't know exactly how these things are going to be doled out. I don't know exactly how Jesus will accomplish this. But the Bible seems to want us to care about it and even allow us to be motivated by these rewards that, we'll be, that we will receive. I don't know how that sits with you this morning, but let me exhort you in an area of your lives regarding this category of evaluation from the scriptures. Since this is the case, since the Bible speaks in a way that should impact how we make decisions about our time and about our money and about our capacities, then we should be concerned that we are growing as Christians and believers. We should be concerned if we're not discovering more places in our hearts and souls for the Spirit of God to transform us and change us. We should be concerned with finding more sin in our lives that we have the privilege and the opportunity to turn from and repent of. We should be concerned with doing with what Jesus says to do. And we should be concerned if we don't experience the need or desire for more transformation in our lives. If life has merely become a wash, rinse, repeat cycle for us, if you find yourself just setting a kind of cruising altitude that you can stomach, if you don't see your days as ones that will be tested with fire, then you're missing something. You're missing something. Your days were not given to you so that you can nail an awesome retirement package. They were given to you to extend the kingdom of our God. Your days, however many God allows you to have, don't belong to you. Only one life will soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last. And that doesn't mean, that does not mean that everyone in this room should become a missionary tomorrow. 
It applies to everybody in the room this morning. Are you a teacher? Only teaching for Christ will last. Are you an attorney? Only what's done for Christ will make it through the test. Are you a city employee? or a grocery store manager. It doesn't matter. You can build with gold and silver and not straw right now. Your life is a gift, a gift to be stewarded and to be offered back to God for his glory. I don't care if you're a doctor or an artist or a homemaker or a carpenter. All of it functions the same. All of it is to be used to build with, to build a life on the foundation of Christ because one day all of our works will be tested with fire. Now, those are three definitions of judgment in the scriptures. Now I want to make three propositional statements about judgment. I want to make three logical statements that simply put are statements that are either true or false, but they can't be both. The first one I want to say is that we must judge. The second one is our judgments will be judged. And number three, our judgments expose our hearts. The first one is that we must judge. And I don't lack the self-awareness to notice that that's an interesting conclusion from a text that explicitly starts with judge not. But it is obvious from the other texts in the scriptures that people must make judgments and that Christians in particular must be skilled at making good judgments with regard to difficult distinctions exactly like the ones that Jesus presents us with in this text. Later on in this text, Jesus commands, don't give dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So there exists a certain kind of situation where we have to distinguish a normal um, situation where we're, we're, we're offering the gospel to someone and another situation where we actually stop and turn away. And most commentators I read agreed that this kind of situation is more rare in the Christian life. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is helpful here when he says that we should, we should get our training for how to know when and when not to do this from Jesus himself. If you want to know how to do this, look at how Jesus behaved in the New Testament or look at the other scriptures where the apostle Paul and how he behaved in the New Testament. How did Jesus deal with people? Because we don't get to decide who's a dog and who's a, a pig. We don't just get to decide who, who we give uh, the gospel to and who we don't give it to. How did Jesus deal with people? Well, with a woman caught in adultery, he is compassionate. But with the arrogant and haughty religious leaders of the day, he is harsh and even insults them. There's examples in the scriptures where Jesus, Jesus would not interact with leaders. He wouldn't interact with Herod. He wouldn't talk to him. And yet he does talk to Pilate. Paul preached to the Jews at first, but eventually he said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. It got to the point where he stopped what he was doing and he moved on. Paul made a judgment based on the response of these Jews. And the heart of me pointing this out is this. The world will pressure you as a Christian 
Maybe even your family will pressure you as a Christian to tell you that part of being a Christian is to avoid evaluations. Is that you don't get to make any judgments at all. It'll say, don't judge me, or you're not allowed to judge me. It's a right thing that we shouldn't judge the hearts of people. But we are, as Christians, to make wise judgments. Judgments about good and evil. Judgments about justice and injustice. Judgments about what is edifying and what is destructive. Christians are not allowed to be neutral with regard to their judgments. And there are even times where wisdom requires suspending judgment for a time. Suspending judgment for a time can be a wise thing to do. Suspending judgment until you have all the facts, for example, is a biblical category of wisdom. Suspending judgment until you hear both sides of a story is biblical wisdom from the Proverbs. Suspending judgment because no one can know what really happened is biblical wisdom, but we don't suspend all judgment because we don't want people to feel bad That's not a category of biblical wisdom. Judgmentalism, a spirit of hyper-criticism, and judging the motives of other people's hearts is condemned in this text, but making sound judgment is a requirement to build your house on the rock, to build with precious stones and metal, to live wisely. At some point, you have to make a judgment. Romans 14 is a text that doesn't, is not saying that anyone can do whatever he feels like doing. It means that each man should live a life where he's at peace with his judgments and not violate his conscience. It says, one person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems, esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Why do you judge your brother? For he will stand before the judgment seat of God. You have to decide, but you don't have to judge persons. I won't stand before you on judgment day, and you will not stand before me on judgment day. Thank God. But make no mistake, we will stand before someone. So we need to be fully convinced in our own conscience about our judgments. George Whitfield was a famous evangelist in the 18th century, and he was embroiled in a handful of controversies in his time that he refused to address directly. And people pleaded with him that his reputation was at stake and that he should clear his own name, but he wouldn't do it. And I love this quote. I love this conviction. I want this kind of conviction for all of us. I'm not speaking necessarily about um, his own wisdom for how he chose to operate, but I am speaking about the conviction of his soul before his own conscience and the living God when he says, I am content to wait till the judgment for the clearing up of my reputation. And after I am dead, I desire no other epitaph than this. Here lies G.W. What sort of man was he? The great day will reveal. The second statement I want to make about judgment is that we will have our own judgments judged. 
The judgments that you make in this life will be evaluated. We'll all answer for them. And in our text, the judgment, in our text, the judgment that it's more important to point out a speck in your brother's eye than the log sticking out of your own eye, that is poor judgment. There's a principle to be learned within this text, and it's simple. Adopt an assessment protocol that examines yourself before you examine others. And let me point out two really simple, pragmatic kind of implications if we will, as a people, adopt this kind of assessment protocol. Two implications that are evident if we will adopt a different posture when it comes to making judgment. The first one is this. If you become a person who examines yourself first, then there will, in your life, be less, much less time for judging other people. Jesus is warning us about being like a hypocrite who goes around trying to perform eye surgery on people with a telephone pole sticking out of our eye. And we tend to think, shoot, yeah, my bad, my bad. Let me pull this giant telephone pole out of my eye so I can get after the important work of removing that little speck in your eye. But the truth is, is that once you take out the log, you will find another one. And... Then once you take out that one, another one will pop up. And if you make it your business to pay the closest attention to your own sin or your own failures or your own immaturity or bad attitude, instead of being consumed with pointing out the flaws and sin in other people's lives, guess what? You will be a very busy person. You'll have your hands full. The goal of what Jesus is saying is not so that we can clean up our living room to go tell other people how dirty theirs is. It's when you clean up your living room, you figure out, oh yeah, I need to hit the kitchen too. Oh, oh yeah, I need to go clean out the garage. Oh yeah, my basement, no one's seen that. It hasn't been touched in years. So the, the, the way we put this into practice in the crow home is like this. Let me, just, let me just make an assumption in this room. The demographic that we have in this church um, proves to me that most of the people in this room have children. And children are professionals at pointing out specks in their siblings. Right? Right? So we have a little liturgy that we do at our house and it just goes like, it just goes, hey, Lucia's job is to worry about Lucia, right? And how much we could learn from our own instructions to our children. That we would worry about becoming experts at the stuff that's in our own eyes first. God has given you your eyes. God has given you your eyes and he gave that person their eyes we should be way more concerned about keeping logs out of our own eyes than we are prone to be. The second implication is that we don't care about what we claim to care about. That's what this example tells us. When we behave as a hypocrite, it's usually with some kind of noble, false motive. We feign that we must critique that person because we care so deeply about this issue. 
We care so deeply about the truth or we care so deeply about this injustice. We care so deeply about the kind of mistake that they're making. We have to say something. But the illustration shows us that we don't care very much about it at all. We just care about it when somebody else is doing it. We don't care about whether or not we are making that mistake. We don't care about whether or not we are violating that truth. We don't care about whether or not we are committing that injustice. If we were really concerned about that mistake, then we would be trying with all our might to avoid making it ourselves. If we were really concerned about justice, then we would do something in our hearts and lives that demonstrates that we're rooting it up instead of spending countless hours writing up scourging Facebook posts. If we're truly concerned about something, then we'll demonstrate that we care about it being uprooted right here first. Not in someone else's life, and definitely not in someone else's life that we don't even know or talk to anymore. The clear reality from the speck and log example is that other people have specks that you and you and I don't even realize that we have a log. Our judgments will be judged, and that is poor judgment. Living your life as a speck finder is building your house with straw and hay and stubble. The person who sees the speck and doesn't see the log doesn't care about the truth. You know what they care about because we know what we care about and we care way more about being the judge than the truth. We make judgments because it feels good to make judgments. And that should be a bright red check engine light for us. Are you pointing something out because you enjoy pointing something out? Or are you pointing it out because you love your brother? Let me love everyone in this room enough to say, you don't want to be the judge. You don't want to be the judge, even though you think you do. There's already a judge, and he doesn't take kindly to other people telling him how to do his job. You don't have to be the judge. Let me free you. You don't have to be the sheriff because there's already a judge and you can trust him. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The answer is yes. If your attitude is that you'd make a better judge than God, then you're in a scary position. And I understand that none of us would say it that way. I understand that none of us would admit it that starkly or that crudely that we like, we like being the judge more than allowing God to be the judge. But if you decide to judge others in a way that the Bible prohibits, that is exactly what we are doing. We think we'd be a better judge. The third statement that I want to make is that our judgments expose our hearts. What you criticize or who you criticize says way more about you than it does about them. Who you criticize or what you criticize says way more about your heart than it does their heart. John Stott says we have a tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize the gravity of our own. And if we would be wise people, we need to learn to reverse that order. Not necessarily in severity, 
but in sequence. We need to examine our own hearts first. And if there's time left over, we can examine other people. This is something that's worth saying, that that being wise and godly doesn't mean being self-deprecating. Being wise and godly doesn't mean punishing yourself to the point that you're not helpful to anybody because you're always staring and magnifying and, and making your sins so large or your mistakes so large that you think you are completely paralyzed or crippled from serving your brother or your sister. The self-loathing person might look at a real sin in their life or a real mistake or a real immaturity in others and say, well, I guess since I also get it wrong and I sin, I can't help anybody with theirs. I better just not even try. Or the self-loathing person may exaggerate their own weakness or faults or immaturity and minimize the immaturity or weakness or faults in others. But that's not biblical wisdom either. It's some sort of strange impulse that we have as human beings. All over the Bible, God is said to delight in accurate balances, accurate scales, So our ambition should be to have an accurate, biblically informed assessment of ourselves, along with a biblically informed freedom from the justification that Christ offers us, so that we measure with biblically accurate measuring tools. Because if we weight the scales in our own favor, if we weight the scales in such a way that we always win and other people always lose, that's the kind of scale that's going to be used for us. So endeavor instead to saturate your thinking with the categories and boundaries and careful assessment tools that are lined out in the scriptures. And don't minimize someone else's faults and don't minimize your own sin and don't exaggerate them either. There's nothing godly about exaggerating your own sin or your own weakness or your own failure, but there is something godly about the the truth about true scales, about a true balance, about truthful assessment and accurate self-understanding and an accurate understanding of others. So with that, my, my final exhortation to us as a people is to get good at the right order of things. Get good at this Sequence that this process of examining ourselves first. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones says it is a most painful and wrenching process, but it's also how to be wise. Get good at noticing the log in your own eye first and foremost. If you want to be free, get good at not noticing all the specks in other people. Get good at not noticing the specs, especially of your wife or your husband, if you want to be wise. Make it your mission to grow in your own ability to notice the logs. Get good at this impulse. That's the challenge. It isn't about getting good at being right but get good at this kind of reflex. Try this on, for example, try this on the next time you have a critique of someone or the next time you find yourself tempted to complain about the way someone acted or complain about someone, how someone behaved or complain about how somebody was speaking. Rehearse this to yourself. Somewhere in, someone, in some other 
kitchen or some other living room, somebody is saying the same thing about me. Whatever judgment that you're tempted to make, somewhere, someone else has the same kind of judgment about you and what you said and what it's like to talk to you or what it's like to try to correct you or admonish you. So let me love you enough to say that we are all guilty of all the types of specs that we're looking for in other people. And you might be guilty of it right now. And Jesus lets us know that that's the posture of a hypocrite. So instead, instead of pretending like our garbage doesn't smell and going around trying to tell everybody about their garbage, we can be honest about it and let the blood of Jesus cover it all. That's true freedom. The true freedom is that you don't have to pretend You don't have to pretend that your junk isn't there so that you can try to act self-righteous and criticize everybody else. You don't have to put it behind a closet and barely get the door shut. You can let it out and be totally honest and let the blood of Christ cleanse you and experience his justification, his forgiveness, his sanctification, and the wholeness from giving up your plans. Instead of pretending... Instead of pretending, you can embrace the fact that Jesus even died for my judgmental heart. He died to make it clean. He died to make me free from self-righteousness and judgmentalism. And he did the same thing for you. Amen? Amen. And we're going to move to the time in our service where we take communion. The way we do that at Redeemer Fellowship is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have three stations down here in the front, two in front of me and one to my left that is single serve and gluten-free. We'll also have prayer ministers over to my left underneath the stained glass window who would love to pray for anybody for anything. And we'll also have a station up in the balcony. If you're placing all of your hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ for his righteousness this morning, then we invite you to come and take communion. If that's not you, we invite you to pray. We'd way rather you take Jesus than take this meal. I'm going to pray for us and thank Jesus for his sacrifice. And the worship team is going to come forward. And then you can come up whenever you're ready. Jesus, thank you for your broken body and your shed blood. Triune God, thank you that this is applied to our lives, that all of our sin can be cleansed, and that we get to receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, I ask that you would quicken us with conviction. I ask that you would bring to our imagination specific places that we have logs sticking out of our eyes. We want to be free from those. We want to love each other well. And eye surgery with a log sticking out of your eye is a dangerous thing. Fill us with faith. Give us the grace 
to put on the humility to admit where we've been self-righteous or stubborn or prideful or judgmental. I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come forward whenever you are ready.